But no, I didn't do anything differently. Uh, yeah, I did too, actually. Ben Crenshaw was a boy wonder at that, that year, and uh, he had this little girl from that he'd met up in uh, Buffalo, New York, and I made sure I paid for a plane ticket to come down and spend a week with him. At, uh... <laughs> in 1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the company of gentlemen golfers who played of Leaf, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers who play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian, Colin Sheehan. And welcome back to another Silver Club podcast. This is episode number 12. We have Vinny Giles on deck waiting to tell you lots of great stories about his days playing in the U.S. Open and his U.S. Amateur Championship in 1972. He's got wonderful stories. You're not going to want to miss that. But first of all, I've got to say on my co-host, Colin Sheehan, we're missing him right now. He is out in California with two of his individual players from Yale University. Uh, they are out at the Stanford Golf Course right now. Round one just finished up out there in the NCAA Regional. He's out there supporting his two players, uh, senior captain James Nicholas and junior Teddy Zisner, uh, who are out there competing and trying to make their way individually to the NCAA Championship. Uh, round one is in the books. They didn't quite play the round that they wanted to, uh, slip back a little bit, but they have two more rounds to go, uh, both about three over par in that. Stanford, as a team, is leading out there on their home track. So a uh, pretty nice uh, thing for the Cardinal out there. So we're missing you, Colin, and I know you'll be back uh, really soon, uh, right after your season is over. You've been so busy this last month and a half. Uh, good luck out there to all your players. Um, so I know you're not going to sit and want to listen to me all day, so I'm just going to rattle off a couple things, and then we're going to get to Vinny. But the PGA Championship is this week, and it's a, it holds a fondness in my heart because I am a PGA member, been a PGA member since 2007, and it's just a uh, it's a wonderful profession. We get to interact with so many great people, the youth of the game. We just get the chance to enthuse our membership and the people that we interact with each and every day as a PGA professional. And we've got 20 PGA professionals, uh, count them, in the PGA Championship field. And I've got to give a big shout-out to three of them in particular. Rod Perry from Florida, Rob LaBritz, and Danny Balin from the Met section in New York. And, and I'm going to isolate Rob and Danny for a little bit. Uh, they've played the New York State Open at Bethpage Black, many, many times. Both are New York State Open champions on the black. They know that golf course about as good as anybody, certainly better than the pros that are playing it. So I, I've got to give I've got to give them a, a uh, an odds on chance to not only make the cut, but have a really nice finish this week. I know it's going to be chilly up there in New York. I know it's going to be uh, the golf course is going to be a little wet. They received quite a bit of rain in the last 24, 48 hours uh, in the spring up there. Uh, maybe not ideal for a firm and fast golf course, but uh, I, I've got to give a shout out to all three of those pros. Rob LaBritz, incidentally, has been given the honor to hit the very first tee shot 
on Thursday morning in the championship off the first tee, 6.45 a.m. So check that out. Uh, congratulations to all 20 PJ professionals who made it through a PGA Professional Championship recently held at Belfair in South Carolina near Hilton Head. And, uh, you know, I have to say I was in that field. Uh, sadly, I missed the 36-hole the cut by one shot, uh, rinsed a couple balls on day two, and uh, led to a, uh, a score a little higher than I wanted. But uh, I was playing pretty well, and, you know, it just uh, didn't work. But had a nice consolation prize later that week. Uh, I ended up playing in the Wells Fargo Championship at Quail Hollow on a behemoth of a golf course, very similar to Bethpage Black. And uh, Quail Hollow was a wonderful test in amazing, immaculate shape, uh, but just too much of a golf course for me at, at over 7,500 yards in length. Uh, you know, and I only average about 290 off the tee, and I'm getting lapped by about the entire field. So uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was a struggle. Uh, shot 75-77. Uh, it felt a little better than that, but when you're hitting four, five, and six iron into half the greens, it becomes a uh, a really difficult test to try to score. But uh, I learned a tremendous amount uh, about it. Uh, I certainly learned you have to be a long bomber out there on the tour, at least on that golf course. The greens on tour are absolutely concrete. When they can make them firm, they make them firm. I hit a seven iron from the rough, got a little bit of a jumper, landed on the front of the green, uh, flew about 180 yards up the hill and hits the front of the green and rolls about 40 yards over uh, the green, about 10 yards over the green, but 40 yards from where it hit, uh, end up hitting it about almost 220 yards with a 7-iron. So that gives you some indication of the firmness of a PGA Tour setup. Uh, I'm not sure the the players at Bethpage will find that sort of setup this week for the PGA Championship, given the weather conditions up there. But it should be very, very interesting. And, And look, we've got Three major champions all playing together on starting on Thursday morning. You've got Brooks Kepka, Francesco Molinari, and the great Tiger Woods just coming off his Masters title. So uh, all three of these champions, the last three major champions, incidentally, so and all have taken major championships from one another uh, in that process. So should be uh, should be a lot of fun to watch that. Uh, pga.com you'll be able to check them out first thing on thursday morning before live television coverage starts so should be very very fun and uh, i'm not sure a lot of productivity will happen in the workforce uh, all around the country that morning but uh, all the bosses will forgive the employees for that one so okay before we get to vinnie giles and all of his great stories i just wanted to take a brief moment to talk about our ever-growing silver club golfing society If you like to play competitive golf on some of the country's greatest venues, then press pause right now, log on to silverclubgolfingsociety.com, get in our pipeline, get to know us, we'll get to know you, become a part of what we're doing. Not only are we conducting tournaments on some of the world-class golf courses like Quaker Ridge, the Inverness Club, Pasatiempo, Even Champions Retreat for our Silver Club Championship where our top 32 point earners will earn their spot. We are creating a community of like-minded golfers who share the same feelings for the histories and traditions of the game as well as being top competitors at their own home clubs. We have tremendous sponsors also in Club Champion, Dunhill, Blast Motion, Torch Eyewear, Links and Kings, as well as our media partner, Global Golf Post. 
Play in a Silver Club Golfing Society tournament this year, and you'll be eligible to win a trip for two to the 2020 Dunhill Links Championship. Thanks to our good friends at Dunhill for making that trip of a lifetime possible. Remember, you can always see what we're up to on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, as well as Facebook. I have to say, I'm personally having a ton of fun interacting with so many of you through emails, telephone, you name it, about our competitive amateur society. I'm hearing great things each and every day, and I really appreciate all of your interest. So I hope each and every one of you becomes a part of what we're doing. Come play an event and hit shots that matter. We're going to get to Vinnie Giles right now, the 1972 U.S. Amateur Champion. It's important to note that this podcast was recorded live at Vinnie's home club just outside Richmond, Virginia, the Kinlock Golf Club. It's going to be host to the 2020 United States Mid-Amateur Championship, and we had a guest host that night in our good friend, Will Smith. Please enjoy this great podcast from Vinnie Giles. So, Steve Scott, who you know... Um, yeah. who, who only finished up runner-up and in, in, in one U.S. Amateur, not three, like yourself, um, was uh, very kind to uh, prepare some questions for us. So I'm just going to dive right in. After finishing runner-up in three straight U.S. Ams, 1967 to 69, you finally captured the most prestigious amateur event in 1972, uh, the last time it was ever conducted at, slow, at stroke play. Did you ever think after the third runner-up finish that this one just wasn't meant to be? Well, uh, anytime you've had that experience, it's, uh, you, you do think, uh, is it going to ever happen? What, uh, in today's world, as, as you see it, uh, when I won the amateur, I was 29 years old. I was really the only, probably the only person who could have or maybe even should have turned professional, uh, to win the U.S. amateur who didn't turn professional. Um, so yeah, I mean, you finished second. Uh, I mean, I will have to. One year, I just got the hell kicked out of me. I was a weak second, but I mean, the first year I finished second, I shot sixty-five the last round, which I think is still a fourth-round record at Scioto in uh, in Columbus, Ohio. And Bruce Fleischer won the golf tournament and thought he had a four-shot lead with four holes to play. And when he got finished, because the leaderboard, I wasn't even on the leaderboard when the round started. Um, so that was, I did all I could there. Uh, actually, excuse me, that's not true. That was, a, that was the second year. The first year, I lost by a shot to Bob Dixon, who went on to play the tour pretty successfully. And uh, he got two rulings from the USGA that had I known a little bit more, it was, I was sort of a rookie at that level. Uh, I think might have changed things. So, yeah, you start to wonder. I mean, you know, you've come as close as you can. I finished, gosh, the next year I finished sixth, and the year after that I finished third. So, you know, that was, I had that kind of run. But uh, at 29 with the college kids dominating the game, yeah, you wonder if, if it really, you know, it's going to happen. So very fortunate that it did. Did you do anything different in 72 to get ready, or was it just keep plugging away? No. I was, I mean, I was in law school the first three years that I finished second. So, I mean, I had I had a job in the summer, but it wasn't a real job. Um, <laughs> is that fair? Because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, 
so no, I mean, in 72, I, was, I had a full-time job, and, and I wasn't playing nearly as much competitive golf. August was always good for me because I played in two or three events in August. So by the time the amateur came around, I had been playing a lot of golf and hitting a lot of balls, so I should have been fairly sharp. But no, I didn't do anything differently. Uh, yeah, I did, too, actually. Ben Crenshaw was a boy wonder at that, that year, and uh, he had this little girl from that he'd met up in uh, Buffalo, New York, and I made sure I paid for a plane ticket to come down and spend a week with him. At, uh, <laughs> well, uh, my, my next question was. was <laughs> My next question was going to ask how your how your mindset changed when you went to to mat, when it went to match play the next year, but obviously you didn't know who you were going to play, so you couldn't you couldn't fly in their girlfriend. So, uh. Well, actually, the next year we played the Walker Cup the week the week before at uh, Brookline, and we got to Inverness in Toledo, and and uh, the way it was hotter than the hinges of hell. And we'd been playing 36 holes a day for about five straight days. I got to the semifinals. And I played Craig Stadler in the semifinals. And he was trying as hard as he could to, to, to let me get back in the match. And my legs were so dead that I told my wife on about the 15th hole, I said, they won't work. I said, he's, he's trying to, to give me, put me back in the game and I can't do anything about it. And he, he beat me, I think, on the 17th hole and went on to win that year. But, uh, no, you're right. I, I, uh, I didn't, I, he didn't have a girlfriend anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, uh, we're okay at match play as well as you, you won the, the the amateur championship and then uh, a, a significant amount of time later the the senior am at match play. How does your mindset change from stroke play to match play? Well, you, people say all the time in match play that you play the golf course, and I think that's the biggest misnomer in the world. I mean, if I'm playing Bob Weaver and Bob Weaver's hit it out of bounds on the third hole. I'm playing the hole to make sure I don't make worse than bogey. Um, so I, you can't play the golf course all the time. I've always, I felt like when I was, when I knew how to play golf, which I don't anymore, um, my short game was really, really good. So I never felt like I was out of a hole or, or out of a, a con, sort of control of the situation. I love match play. I mean, I actually prefer match play to stroke play, but, I never felt it was the right way to determine the national championship. When you look at today, there are probably 400 college players that can consistently shoot under par at, at their college level. Um, you go out and, and uh, the first round of match play, you draw somebody and you shoot 66 and they shoot 65 and you're on the way home. And you're probably in the top five in the tournament if it was stroke play. So uh, I, I think match play is great. It's what we're going to all play the rest of our lives. Uh, we'll probably never play a stroke play event other than maybe a club championship uh, and probably a net part of the club championship. But, um, you know, 
real competition still goes goes to the uh, to the stroke play at the at the top level. Um, what did it mean to you to play on four U.S. Walker Cup teams, um, and then captain captain the team to victory in '93? Well, the Walker Cup is if you're an amateur, if you stay amateur, and it's it's again because of the money in professional golf now, it's probably less important than it used to be. But that was the ultimate. I mean, that's what you strive for. That's what you tried to do. You tried to be one of the ten ten people that that represented your country, uh, and and that was you know, that that was the, the pinnacle. Um, I mean, I would never forget, I guess the most nervous I ever was standing on a first tee in golf was my first Masters, which was 1968. The second most nervous I ever was was standing on the first tee at Milwaukee Country Club to be the first person to hit a ball for the United States um, in the Walker Cup. I mean, the flag goes up. The national anthems played the whole nine yards, and we're playing alternate shot. And Steve Melnick was my partner. He had won the U.S. Amateur. In fact, he won the U.S. Amateur the week after. Uh, I finished second to him uh, at the uh, at the Amateur that year at Oakmont. And I proceeded to hit the ugliest snap hook you ever saw. That <laughs> ball went out there and went. And we were way up on top of a hill, and you had to walk down under the hill to get down to the first fairway. And, of course, you know, there are 5,000 people standing around. Oh, that's okay, partner, no problem. We get down, now we get down this path under the hill. You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> So, it, but it, it's uh, and and being the captain was a was a real honor, and a, I had a great group of guys, and it was it was fun. We won, I think. Actually, we have the largest margin of victory still uh, in the history of the matches. So, who, who was on that team? Uh, yeah, we had a bunch of mid-ams, uh, and not a whole lot of guys that went on to do very well. Uh, Danny Yates. John Harris, Jay Sigel, and um, Alan Doyle were our four mid-ams, and we had uh, a young man named Todd Dempsey, who was really probably the best player on the team, who uh, developed a brain tumor at age 24. Continued to play, but didn't play, uh, you know, never got past the web.com status. Uh, David Bergonio, Brian Gay. There you go. Another gator. Gator. Mm-hmm. Gator nation's everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, and we need to stomp them. <laughs> <laughs> that, that must have been something partnering with Melnick, a, a gator yeah. bulldog pairing at yep. the Walker Cup. Yeah, well, we tried to recruit him, but he uh, Buster bust Bishop got him to Florida. Uh, um, Justin Leonard, uh, who was probably on record the best uh, – I said Bragani, I can't even think about that thing. I got eight out of ten. That's pretty good for pretty me. Good. <laughs> what was what was more fun for you, captaining or playing? Playing. playing. Yeah, no question. Um, you finished seventeenth, and then seventy three U.S. Open at Oakmont. 
Um, do you have a favorite memory from that week? Or uh, yeah, I actually, um, I played a practice round with Sam Snead and Lionel Abraham when Lanny Watkins and I played them, beat the hell out of them, got stiffed, never got paid. <laughs> Which is typical. Pros never pay amateurs. I've never understood. It's a one-way street. Um, but I was paired with uh, I was paired with Nicholas the first two rounds because he had won the Open, uh, the '72 Open. I'd won the '72 Amateur, and I was just trying to make the cut. We're standing on the 15th hole. I'm sure a lot of you've played Oakmont, and I think the cut looked like it was going to be six or seven over something like that and i am standing on 15 t and i think i'm four over par four or five over and i'm thinking well 15 is definitely a bogey hole 16 is definitely a bogey hole 17 is not so bad and 18 is definitely a bogey hole so I got to figure out how to make at least three pars in these last four holes to make the cut. And I had a good drive on 15. Nicholas has got it about 10 yards in front of me. He must have necked his. And I take a six iron, and I hit this shot, and boy, it really looks good. It's going right in the dead center of the green. Hits the green, starts to roll, and next thing you know, it goes in the hole for two. So Nicholas, who really back then had next to no personality, he uh, he got over his shot, and he stepped back, and he took his seven iron, and he plumb bobbed his second. So that's pretty good for Jack. Now, I made a par on 16, par hard, par three. I think it was a three wood for me off the tee. Hit a perfect tee shot on 17 and kind of skinny the wedge about 30 feet past the hole. Made that putt, no problem. Went right in the middle of the hole. Get to 18, I hit two good shots to about 20 feet. And those of you who played Oakmont, a 20-footer at Oakmont's like a five-footer a lot of places. And Nicholas is about two feet inside of me on the same line. And as soon as I hit the putt, I knew it was going in. I mean, just you could just I follow, I was following it to the hole. He gave me one of these. Oh, excuse me, I didn't mean to get in your way. But I played the last four and four under, and ended up finishing. I think I was even par after two rounds. So that was that was the memory I have of that. It was a four hole memory. Pretty good. <laughs> is, that, is that the event when you had a hole in one on seventeen? No, that was in the. Stanley Druckenmiller SWAT. <laughs> That's a better time. Yeah, well, it was, it, more money it was worth a whole lot yeah. more money. You're damn right it was. <laughs> uh, you played in nine Masters. Um, do you have a, a favorite memory from, from uh, Augusta? Uh, again, first, first year I played, I was in law school. I had played virtually no golf since probably October. And we had classes at, at the University of Virginia on Saturday, so I said, told my wife, I said, I'm gonna, she was going to come down later. And I said, I'm going to go down. As soon as class is over, I'm going to pack the car, and I'm walking right out of class and going right to Augusta. So Thursday morning, I woke up about 6 o'clock, and I said, I can't stand any longer. I'm out of here. 
And I packed my car up and took off Thursday morning. <laughs> I had not talked to any of my professors, but somebody had talked to them for me. So it was, it still wasn't very, it was pretty frosty. Um, and I got in and played 36 holes. I played 18 Thursday. I got there fast enough to play third. We played round and round. I mean, we must have played a million holes ago. And the first, uh, first round, I start off, and as I said, it's the most nervous I think I've ever been in my life. And uh, first hole, I said, well, I'm not going anywhere near that bunker. I'm going to take it to the left. I hit it to the left. And back then, the trees were only about that high. <laughs> and uh, um, I've got a five-iron shot to the green. Now, so I'm pretty pumped up. I think I'll hit six-iron. I barely got it over the front bunker, about 30 feet, right in the hole. No problem. Three. I go around to the fifth hole and I hit a skanky iron shot. And that little, those of you who've been there, that little bowl in front pins up over the other side of the bowl. I got about a 50 footer. <laughs> Goes right in the hole. Hit some, uh, hit a lady in the head on six. I pulled my t shirt. <laughs> And I went over and did my apologies and what have you, and I go over to hit my little pitch shot, and there's blood on the ball. That's nice. <laughs> so anyway, I got that one up and down. <laughs> made, made another birdie at eight, par nine. So I'm three under par. And I'm feeling pretty good now. I think, man, this is, this is really fun. <laughs> They used to have announcers on 9 and 18 green, for those of you that went there long enough ago, and they had a red coat on. This man was from uh, down in Wake Cross, Georgia. His name was Leo Beckman, and I knew Mr. Beckman. He was a golf pro down there. And as I'm walking off the green very timidly, he announces to the crowd, leading the Masters at this moment, a young amateur from Virginia. And I went, oh, God. <laughs> I hit eight greens and a fringe on the back nine and shot two over. <laughs> I had 19 putts. <laughs> but that was, and, you know, and I played well the rest of the week. In fact, one other fun story, I was playing with, uh, with Dave Marr the last round. He was one of the nicest guys in the world. And... I was, I think we were only four shots out of the lead going into, uh, going into Sunday. And I birdied the first two holes. I made a birdie on the second hole out of the creek down the, down in the woods to the left. And I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty good. So these guys are probably choking and I got, I got to go back to law school tonight. So I got no pressure on me. Well, that's the year DiVincenzo signed the wrong scorecard. And, uh, but he started out, he, he holed his second shot on the first hole for a two. He birdied uh, two and he birdied three. He went to four, from four under to eight under. I think Bruce Devlin went from five under to eight under the first three holes. When I walked down to six and looked at the leaderboard, I said, shoot, I'm going, I'm playing over my head and I'm going backwards. And I hit it over in the trees to the left on seven and we were waiting pretty much on every hole. And I'm trying to figure out how to weave it through the trees and get it up in the front bunker where maybe I can make a par. And Dave Marr walks over to me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to figure out how to get it in that bunker. 
He said, see a green up there? I said, yeah. He said, there are 5,000 people behind that green. They can't all move. Just take a three hour and hit it as hard as you can because it's going to hit somebody. <laughs> Well, I hadn't, I hadn't played on the tour, so I didn't know all those tricks. I tried to chop it up in that bunker and made a double bogey, and that was the end of that. <laughs> With all of your success in the amateur game, was there ever a point uh, that you seriously considered turning pro? And, and what, were, what was your thought process, and how did you end up where you are today, being one of the great amateurs of all time? Well, that, that question's been asked a million times, and... I change the answer sometimes just to protect the guilty. But uh, realistically, when I got out of uh, Georgia in, in uh, 1966, I was planning to turn pro. I mean, I, I'd finished second in the NCAA championship. Again, another friggin' Gator, Bob Murphy. Um, and, uh, um, me too. <laughs> um, we, uh, my, I, I got married right out of college, and, and we just kind of talked about it. And I always laughed to my wife. She said, "You know, I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my life in the Holiday Inn." And I told some, told them years later. I said, "You realize now that back in those days, the Holiday Inn was about a four star." You'd have been more like in a Motel 6, because <laughs> we wouldn't have had any money. But uh, I looked at that, and I also looked at having listened to people like Billy Casper say what a, what a drag professional golf was. It was just nothing but a 9-to-5 job, and it wasn't any fun, and blah, blah, blah. And I always loved playing golf. I loved the people around it, and I loved the, just the whole idea of playing golf, and, and uh, that had a lot to do with it, and that's when I decided to go to law school and thought about it a little bit after law school because I had actually more national success at that point. But uh, it just, uh, I don't know. I mean, the only regret I'll ever have is I never found out if I was good enough to compete with the best. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the creation of, of Kinlock and your work with Lester George, uh, co-architect here, and, and how this course came to be and how it's changed over the years? In the mid-late 90s, C.B. Robertson, who's uh, actually whose wife's family owned all this land, the Luck family, owned Luck, Luck Stone Quarry, uh, asked me if I would consider building a golf course for him. Uh, and my immediate answer was no. And he wanted to know why. I said, because I don't know how. I said, I can get from point A to point B. Uh, you know, I can pretty much find tea sites and green sites. Um, I don't know that I can route it the way it should be done. I don't know a damn thing about drainage, which if you don't have good drainage, you have nothing. I said, I can read a topo map. It goes 0, 10, 20, 30. It doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, I said, now, if you would let me hire somebody to do it, uh, to work with me, I said, I would, would love to do it. It would be a real challenge and a lot of fun. 
The original plan for Kenlock was to be a, a quote-unquote upscale daily fee golf course. Um, Bermuda grass, upscale enrichment. I mean, there are a couple of courses that are trying to charge more, but for the most part, upscale daily fee enrichment's $50 market, give or take. Um, I came out when he agreed, that's when I brought in Lester. It was a, it was a low budget operation initially. Um, and I, we cleared, and we, as you can see, tremendously wide corridors. I mean, we cleared it as a daily fee golf course with the idea that you create wide corridors, you don't hunt for a lot of golf balls, you get people around more if you got Four more starting times a day, times 50, you got $200 a group. You know, pretty simple math. The math's not complicated. Um, I came out one Sunday morning by myself and actually started on what is now 10th tee. And I walked the entire clearing lines and I came back and I was just, I was, even though I'd been helping the clearing, I'd been pulling the center lines, I'd been doing all that stuff. Um, I was really shocked by what I found. Uh, for those of you who pr probably don't know it, we moved very little dirt out here. We, we moved less than, than uh, 200,000 yards of dirt. So, I mean, you you know real better than I, they're moving two million. Tom Fazio won't do a course for, for moving less than a million yards. And uh, here was this piece of property, and it was spectacular, and it had great movement to it. And I went to Mr. Robertson, and I said, would you consider a, a not a very smart financial move? Um, and he said, what is that? I said, making it a golf club. Just pure golf, no, you know, just just golf. And he said, why? And I told him why. I said, you've got something that's, you know, in this proximity to a major metropolitan area, you're not going to find this sort of land anymore. And uh, that's how we converted to what Kenlock is today. And it is bent grass because we said we've got to make a statement in order to try to get people to join a golf club with no other real amenities no swimming no tennis no family no this that and the other thing um we've got to do something unique and that's really how the concept came about uh Fortunately, I think for the for the Robertson family, uh, Julia, you're, you you can attest to it better than anybody. They did very well with their real estate around Kenlock, so you know it's uh, it it's worked. I think for everybody and uh, Lester uh, Lester's very talented, very good at getting. Uh, I mean, I had a governor on him on certain things. I had some some input and I had some veto power uh, but for the most part the routing is really his I mean I'd say 85% of what you see today is pretty close to the original routing other than some of the T's we've added etc um, and uh, the drainage I mean he's I think he's as good as anybody in the business with drainage um, 
and so it was a it was a lot of fun. It really was probably one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life was watching this thing come from a just a great big forest to uh, to what it is today. Uh, Kinlock hosted the 2011 U.S. Senior Am, and you'll be hosting the U.S. Mid Am next year. How how important is it for you and the club uh, to host these USGA National Championships? I'm not a good person to ask, quite honestly. Uh, I thought the senior amateur was great because it was 2011. We'd been here open for 10 years. I thought it was the right demographic, the right group of people to bring in to see Kenlock, uh, hopefully to spread some goodwill, uh, et cetera. Um, I, I don't think the club needs it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's publicity that helps grow the membership. We're not trying to, you know, re reinvent the wheel, uh, et cetera. Uh, the mid-am, I, to be honest, I had nothing to do with the, with the final decision to, to have it or not to have it. I would have probably voted against it. Because you've got 200 and I think it's 280 fairly young players who will absolutely just tear your practice facilities to hell. Um, you know, we'll, it'll take us a full season to recover the divots uh, in our short game area and on our practice tees. Um, you know, it'll be nice for them to see a club and have that experience. But again, I don't think we need it. So uh, um, it's a nice tribute, I guess. Plus, if you understand how the USGA works, they make they want you to raise all the money. They want you to do all the work, and uh, you know they just show up, come come have a cocktail. So I'm not uh, I'm not a big fan of the way they operate. Uh, you just referenced the uh, the practice facilities. Um, it's one of the, the obviously with the first things that people see when they come and start to sort of experience the golf here. How important to you was was building a great practice facility? And was there anything that was modeled after? Or was it uh, how did how did it come about? I would really say that that more than more than my my input, it was really somewhat of Lester's creation. Um, I think it's critical today because, again, I don't know how a lot of you all feel, but I think people really enjoy practicing now. If you've got some pretty golf balls and you got some pretty grass and you got a nice pretty day, it's a, it's a great way to spend an hour or two. Um, you know, things have changed. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in Caddy and there wasn't even a, there wasn't a practice tee. My father and his buddies might walk over the edge of the first tee and hit three old balls off in the woods and then they teed off. Um, but today I think it's important and we've got a, a really good teaching program. Uh, so yeah, people encouraged to, to, to practice and, and the facility, the better the facility, the more people are going to use it. And so and I think it's very, very important today. You created a very successful professional golf management firm, Pros Inc. Uh, in dealing with tour pros you represented and seeing the tour life through their eyes, how many times did you go home at night and thank your lucky stars uh, you weren't out there full time? 
Not many. (laughs) It's a full-time babysitting job. Um, it's changed. It's really changed a lot. We are, we started our company in 1973, and we had a lot of a lot of good friends. I, actually, our motto was "Let's make these guys our friends first and our clients second. And Gary Koch, I keep coming back to more than anybody, another Gator, is one of my closest friends today. I mean, I still do his TV contract, even though I'm no longer in the business. Um, well, there's great loyalty. I mean, Tom Kite, Gary Koch, Lanny Watkins, etc. I mean, yeah, they were clients from day one, and and they were clients when I walked away. Uh, it was just a you know a whole different feeling. Today, it is almost like the basketball and football agents. I mean, it's cutthroat. You know, they somehow stab you in the back. The players are looking for who's got the best deal. He wants 18%. He'll do 12. I'll go with the guy with 12. Well, first of all, they don't realize 18 is 9 after taxes. And, so, and secondly, they don't realize that the 12% guy is probably not as good as the 18% guy. It's, but it's really become all about them, and it's money. It's just pure and simply money. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've been a little bit facetious, Will. It, it, uh, I, I, I enjoyed the hell out of the business uh, for most of the time. We sold our business in 1999, and it never was the same, but I knew that going in. I mean, when you're working for somebody else, it's not going to be the same. And within about, they left us alone for about three years, and then they had to get bigger. I mean, everybody wanted to be Mark McCormick, and there wasn't going to be but one Mark McCormick. And uh, if you'd been smart enough to realize that early on, you would have done your own thing and been fine. And these people in these bigger firms, they all thought they, you know, they had a chance to be, be the next king. You're one of 13 men, including the great Bobby Jones, to have won the U.S. Amateur and the British Am, which you captured in 1975. How proud are you of this fact? Uh, it's, it's really nice. Um, I don't dwell on it much. I mean, I feel very fortunate to have been able to, to win them. Uh, but it's, you know, I mean, <laughs> it was 72 and 75 a long time ago. I'm just, yeah, I'm happy to still be able to play golf and enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I'll have those memories, but, uh, God, they fade fast. <laughs> well, of all your accomplishments in the game, is there one that stands out? Well, if you talk about just, a, you know, a pure record, I, I mean, I would match my U.S. amateur record against anybody if you go back and start in 67 to go second, 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 sixth, third, first, third over that period of time, uh, I, that is the record I'm the most proud of. I mean, I was, I was in that position for that many years in the national championship. Uh, the game of golf has been such an important part of your life. And um, is there anything that you want your legacy to be? Mm, I just, you know, I hope my kids are proud of me. Basically, that's it.
Um, that's all the that's all the questions I have. Is there anyone? Uh, Jeff, do you have a question? Favorite golf course on the planet? I don't really have one. I answer that question sort of a funny way. If somebody told me I could play all the golf I wanted on one golf course uh, the rest of my life, it would be Cypress Point. And only because, because I, I mean, quite honestly, and even for those of you who might be members of Cypress Point, I think it's the most overrated golf course in the Golf Digest ratings I've ever laid my eyes on. I mean, it isn't in the top 30, and they got it as third. But it is the prettiest walk in golf. And that's, I mean, yeah, that's some, the best, I think the best championship golf course we have in this country is uh, Shinnecock, hole for hole, right straight in front of you. Uh, I love Pinehurst number two. I'm fortunate to be a member at Seminole. I could play that every day and, and never, never get tired of it. Uh, and, and some of them I haven't played. I haven't played Sand Hills. I understand it's wonderful. I am a big fan of the the more classic courses, the old courses, the Rosses, the Tillinghast. Um, Seth Rayner I love. I think he's a magician. I mean, you look at Yeamans Hall, Charleston Country Club, a golf course that probably very few in this room have played or even heard much of, West Hampton Golf Club on Long Island. I will promise you, if you get a chance to go play that one, go play it, because it is special. Chris, do you get a golf instructor or a self-golf? Oh, when I was coming along, I started playing golf when I was four or five years old. We didn't even have a pro at my club till I was probably 18 or 19. Uh, you learn, I learned caddying and watching the best players. Um, that was pretty much how I learned it. Yeah, I loved it. I don't know why, from a very young age, I loved it. So I was out there chipping and putting and Sneaking on golf courses I wasn't supposed to be on, etc. Went out for a long, long time. Uh, hey, bro. Question, if you could have one shot over your entire career and have it be you, can you think of a shot and you want to be it? No, I can't think of one. Had <laughs> a hook I hit in the lake on 18 here in the, in the, in the, in the senior amateur. <laughs> I'd like to have that one back. <laughs> How about the law bar? You and I talk about this. Did they make a mistake in banning the law bar? I think they should have banned it five or six years into when it came out because it's a it's a it's a crutch but they should once they let it go for what 18 19 years they should have never touched it i mean how, what the heck's the difference in the matt kuchar and all these guys with the thing running up their arm that's anchored too i mean that's more anchored than touching your chest I don't know. There are a lot of things they do I don't understand. You got any thoughts on the ball? Uh, too late.
I think it's just, you know, I, I, the ball is, is out of control. And again, they didn't rein it in when they could have. And uh, I mean, they keep, they keep telling you they've maxed out the driver. I got a driver this year that goes 10 yards longer than the one I had last year. It ain't, it ain't I. I can promise you that. Benny, thank you so much um, for taking the time coming and welcoming us to this wonderful place. Uh, we really appreciate it. Well, and, uh, it's been a, it's been a real treat. Great, thank great you. to have you. Thank you.